this topic today is, is one of a series of uh, themes of Scripture that I've been studying over the years and bringing to my students and exploring the how to, what's the scriptural foundation for business in terms of these grand themes of Scripture. What are the business principles that emerge from these themes? And since the theme of our gathering here this weekend is standing, I want to read for you. It's not, I don't have it on a slide here, but let me read for you Ephesians chapter 6. You know, the Apostle Paul is, is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he's now he's, he's down at the end of his letter, bringing his letter to a conclusion. And he's now he's going to challenge them to put on God's armor, right? And no, notice what he says here. Therefore, verse 13, Ephesians 6, 13, Therefore take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. This is the theme of our conference. And this is the theme of this seminar this morning. Business managers stand up in the great controversy. I don't know if you've ever thought about, is it, does the great controversy have anything to do with business? Or is that just something that happens in my private life, my secret private life, that, that, this, that Satan is after me like a roaring lion, you know, coming to seek to devour? Is that only in my private life? Or is that in business? Is it in business organizations? And let's, let's even expand that idea. Is it in the marketplace? Is the marketplace one of the contexts for this cosmic conflict, this great controversy? I was in South Africa waiting my turn to give a presentation to about a thousand um, educators from the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the uh, South Africa Indian Ocean Division, way up top in the in the auditorium waiting my turn and it was at that moment as I was thinking about my presentation to come in a few minutes where the the great aha moment happened for me and all of these themes rushed into my my brain and my heart and I realized wow each one of these themes of scripture that I've been studying kind of separately each one is tied to Jesus Christ it is a part of his identity each theme is, a, is one element in the character of God. And each theme is tied to direct guidance from Scripture for us in our conduct. And it was at that aha moment I said, they're related to business. It has to be. We cannot separate our, our church life and our private family life from the rest of our life. It, we are who we are wherever we are, Right? Yeah, and God's world, God is not just Lord of the Sabbath on church, which He is. Yes, He's Lord of the Sabbath, but it's not only on Sabbath day. How about Sunday through Friday? Yeah. And I have a feeling that Satan doesn't take six days off. All right? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 16 takes this same theme of our weekend of standing. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. I'm going to connect, I hopefully will connect with you or for you this theme of standing 
with also the, also the theme of imitating God. I'm going to share with you in just a moment my thesis. Uh, for some of you, this might go a little deeper than you might be used to thinking about business. All right, so I'm going to warn you, get a long snorkel. We're going to use the, the imagery of, of snorkeling. We're going to go a little deeper. I've, I've been told by others, I didn't think it was so deep, but I've been told by others, that's pretty deep. Okay, okay, so let me warn you. Here's my thesis. It says in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, that God created us in his image, right? Yeah. And we, I, all of this is very familiar territory in terms of Adventist theology and understanding. We know that when sin came through the actions of Adam and Eve, what happened to the image of God? It was marred. It was not completely destroyed. It was not completely defaced, but it was marred. And now this presents one of the biggest challenges in the universe to restore that perfect image of God. Yeah. The image of God established at creation has been marred and God's plan of redemption includes that restoration. If we're going to think about anything about business, we've got to start with this. Creation, what happened at sin, and God's great plan of redemption. If you're thinking, well, well, church and evangelism and redemption, all of that's territory over here, but then on Sunday or Monday morning, business is over here, and on Friday night, yeah, I'm going to start moving back towards redemption thinking, oh my, what's going on in our life when we fragment that kind of thing? We're trying to fragment our life. God's plan of redemption includes the restoration of His image. And the restoration and process involves the imitation of the character of God. I'm going to explore with you in just a few minutes the various ways that the Scripture talks about that imitation restoration process. The character of God is expressed in, well, several ways, one of which is these grand themes of Scripture. We'll explore two other ways that his character is expressed also. I'm going to assert to you today that business is a setting, not just the church. I'm going to put the church over here. Yes, the church is the setting in which God's Holy Spirit, the power of his Holy Spirit is at work restoring his image. When we're sitting in the church pew, when we're in Sabbath school class, right, and other church-related activities in the fellowship hall for potluck dinner, God is at work restoring our Im His image in us, right? How about Sunday morning? Monday morning. How about Tuesday at lunch at work? Or Thursday afternoon when you come back from lunch at work? Is God taking the week off? <laughs> is the Holy Spirit taking the week off in terms of restoring God's image? Waiting for Friday afternoon to come back around to start the restoration process again? It can't be true. That cannot be true. It's got to be a seven-day-a-week, 24-hours-a-day proposition. And business must be, I reason business must be one of those settings where God is restoring His image. The grand, to, to advance this one or two steps farther, the grand themes of Scripture, I believe, are the fundamental principles of business. The very character elements of God, or the elements of His character, 
become the principles of business. This, his character is how he manages the universe when there are rebellious creatures. His character must be the principles. So I relate to this the final step in my thesis thinking here. I've got to think about the purpose of business in these terms. I'm not in business just to make money. No. There's something much bigger at stake here going on. Some bigger processes. I'm not just in business to earn money so that a portion of that money can be given to the church. As good as that is, that is very important. But the purpose of the business is much bigger than that. I'm not in business just so I can take 10% of my earnings, the retained earnings, and donate those for the tithe. Yes, we do that. That is one of the constraints on our spending. But there are some very important constraints on the earning. The six days of the week also. No, the purpose of business has got to have a grander perspective than just earning money, having a job, and giving money to somebody. There's bigger things at stake here, as important as all of those things are. Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, this is a, for years this, this statement haunted me in a way that I just kind of, what, what is she saying? What does she mean by this? Religion and business are not two separate things. They are one. I believe it is in understanding these grand themes that we finally understand what she means. She was a student of the themes of Scripture, as we know. As far as we know, she wasn't a business expert. But boy, she understood some really deep connecting principles between the Bible and business. Well, the elements of God's character are revealed in three things. We've got the grand themes of Scripture, which I'm going to share what those are in just a moment. They're also revealed in the succinct conceptual description of God's character, namely the Ten Commandments. And finally, the most visible description is in the life and work of Jesus Christ. We might also extend this thinking to the work of the Holy Spirit in doing an additional study of these themes. Eleven of the twelve themes I'm going to share with you are connected directly to the work of the Holy Spirit too, which maybe that's no surprise to us, except it kind of was to me when I first realized, that. whoa, okay, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> of course, the character should be there. Uh, but it, it's, it is in Scripture. How did these themes emerge? Where, I didn't dream these up. <laughs> I didn't make these up. I began to notice that there were certain passages of Scripture that would directly identify the character elements, or the elements of God's character. We often see these in the Psalms. Right? In fact, uh, David in the Psalms is one of the most prolific Bible writers to identify the elements of God's character. There are other scripture passages, a whole network of passages that identify Jesus Christ, who he is, his, his divinity, and his work. And then there's other passages separate from these other two clusters, other passages of scripture that identify our conduct. It's where these three sets of scripture passages meet, using this Venn diagram idea. That's where these 12 
themes emerge, themes that are common to our conduct, the character of God, and the identity and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that was that aha moment I told you about in South Africa when it was like a bolt of lightning kind of struck me. Here are the 12 themes. They're probably familiar to you. Many of these. Of course, the, the great controversy theme, which I'm going to focus on today, a little bit more than the others, but the theme of creation, the theme of covenant, shalom, Sabbath, wisdom, truth, righteousness, loving kindness, redemption, justice, and holiness. Each of these other 11 themes intersect with the great controversy theme. Each of these 12 themes have something directly to say about us in business. The purpose of business, the principles of business, and what we're all about in business. Today we're going to focus mainly on the great controversy. All right. Uh, in August I've been invited to come to the national ASI meeting and I'm going to be giving a seminar on Shalom and identifying some of the very interesting principles of Shalom, what that means for business and wealth management from the scripture point of view, which will be, some, will be surprising to some folks when they see what the scripture really has to say. These grand themes of scripture are grounded in the writings of Moses. It is in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and in particular Exodus and Deuteronomy, where we see these themes emerge. But these themes don't just end with the writings of Moses. We see them all through the Scripture, Genesis through Revelation. These themes are the basis of the message of the prophets, some of whom, by the way, if you remember carefully, some of those folks were actually in business. And they emerged as prophets. I'm thinking about Amos as an example, a shepherd who went in through the streets of the town. Eventually, the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Amos, and he spoke mightily about the injustices going on in the marketplace of his day. Not all of us have that courage to speak, because you could lose your job. You could lose your career, unless you have your own business, <laughs> which apparently Amos was the owner of his own business. So these themes are the basis of the prophet's messages. They are identified many times in the Psalms. They're identified in the apocalyptic literature, identified in the narratives and in poetry. They're everywhere in Scripture, and they come in groups sometimes. It's amazing to me to see over 570 times these themes appear in small groups together in very uh, two or more verses in close proximity. That's a lot. They appear in groups in 88% of the Scripture Bible books. In groups. And that's not to mention when they appear individually. Right? Throughout the entire Scripture. Look what Ellen White says about these themes. The subject treated upon in the Word of God, the noble themes which it presents to the mind, developed faculties in man which cannot otherwise be developed. The student will come from a contemplation of its grand themes, from association of its lofty imagery, more pure and elevated in thought and feeling. And these truths will do what? A mighty work. Yeah, a mighty work. My study now in, in my scholarship is focused almost exclusively on 
how can this mighty work, how does this mighty work happen? And what, where is the power in these themes? How can we, can we explore with students, at least at the university, and I hope exploring with people in business, how can we explore with them the power of these themes so that they see the attractiveness of the character of God and find opportunities to advocate on or to, to display the elements of God's character in their work. The themes describe the foundation of how God manages his business when there's rebellion. How does he manage? His character describes how he manages. Speaking about restoration of the image of God, this is a familiar quote to many of you. Often it's only the first part of the sentence that is quoted, though. To restore in man the image of his maker, this is the object of education. Many times people stop the quotation right there. But she goes on and says, it is the great object of life. And I'm thinking, oh, so it's not just while I'm in school. I graduate from school and now I'm in the rest of my life, so apparently the restoration is done now. I'm, I'm, I graduated, I got a degree, got a bachelor's degree, the restoration process has ended for me, right? Object of education. Oh, no, no, no. The restoration process continues. Now I'm at work. <laughs> That's the rest of life. I'm working, right? It's the great object of my working in business, if I could take some license and paraphrase that, the great object. Well, the restoration process, the image of God is a, a miraculous divine recreation power, of course, but it does involve human cooperation. Absolutely. And it's that human cooperation side which I'm going to explore. Notice the various ways that the Scripture describes the restoration process. Several ways. It is described, first of all, in like Corinthians and Ephesians as, well, when you establish a faith relationship with God, that is restoration. That starts the process. That's an important, the important foundation. When we let the transcript of God's character, and what is that, by the way? What's the shortened version of describing the transcript? The law of God. When we let God's law restore us. I've got to read some of these passages. I know I'm probably going to run out of time, but the Scripture is so powerful. I, just, I need to let the Scripture words have their impact. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the chapter that follows the restatement of the Ten Commandments, which comes in chapter 5. Right? And now he's going to describe the purpose of the law. And there's this famous, famous passage in, in verse 4 of, of chapter 6. The hero Israel, the Shema of Israel, in verse 4. But look at verse 5. And these words, excuse me, verse 6. These words which I command you this day shall be on your what? Your heart. The words on the heart is this restoration process. To renew, to restore our hearts. And Psalms 19 Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. By the way, in, in Psalms 19, verse 7, there are two of those themes right there. <laughs> two of those themes. You have to read carefully, and if you understand the themes, they just jump off the page. 
Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. There's one of the themes, one of the twelve, the theme of covenant. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise, there's another one of those themes, making wise the, the simple. And here there's a direct connection made between the character of God and wisdom. Yeah. Uh, let's take a look at some of these other, oh, in Colossians chapter 3. The restoration process is discussed and described in terms of Christ dwelling in us. Having Christ live in us, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, was, was focused on this whole thing of restoration and how important Christ is in us. Putting on the clothing of Christ's character is, is described in another place. And then in beholding his character, we become what? Change. That's the restoration process there. And finally, in Ephesians, the, the imitation process is also the restoration process. Well, in the great controversy theme, now to focus more specifically on that, we'll have to, we'd have to leave the other themes for another day to explore, but this is the great controversy theme. I want to share with you some of the uh, passages that identify Jesus Christ and his work with, in terms of the great controversy. These are not in any particular order. Maybe if I, as I do more study, I'll find the, the precise best, the one best order to share these with you. Acts chapter 10. Jesus of Nazareth is being described and discussed. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Some of his work, some of Jesus' work while he was here on earth, particularly those last three and a half years, were focused on undoing some of the damage that Satan had done in people's lives. Healing all who were oppressed. Now, at, at first glance, this doesn't seem to have much to say about business. Unless you're a physician and you own your own clinic and you run your business as a clinic, right? So if there's any physicians in the room, yes. Healing those who were oppressed, I see the connection to, with business. But how about the rest of us who don't in, aren't involved in any health-related businesses? I want you to think about that for a minute. Is there some healing from oppression that you can bring to people in and around your circle in your part of the marketplace to counteract the work of Satan? Hebrews 2 verse 4. Jesus is again being described, his identity. He himself likewise also partook of the same, same human nature. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil of course this is describing his his work of redemption on the cross yeah that he might render powerless that phrase render powerless caught my attention if we're going to imitate the character of Christ what are the ways we might render powerless him who had the power of death when it comes to marketplace activities. John, the, one of the closest disciples to Jesus, in reflecting on Jesus' life, later on, he wrote this, the Son of Man appeared for this purpose. He's going to boil the whole story down now to one idea. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy 
the works of the devil. Wow. <laughs> there it is in a very succinct statement in terms of the role of Jesus Christ in this great conflict. Right? Here's his purpose. Now, clearly, we don't have the same... We don't have divine power. We, don't, we are not divine. Our role is not to destroy Satan. Right? Oh, but be careful. There are some things. Because here's some other passages. Now we come to passages that discuss our conduct in terms of the great controversy. Matthew chapter 20. Here's famous passages about leadership. Jesus called them to himself, his disciples, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whosoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Here's a contrast. As the great controversy plays out on this planet Earth, we find certain human beings in positions of authority and leadership lording it over. This is, of course, one of the great uh, claims that Lucifer made about God, that he's lording it over us. He's coercing us. He's making it hard for us to really express our true worth and value and all that we should be and could be. God is keeping his thumb on us. That's the great, you know, the great, one of the great deceptions. And Jesus is, in his manner, is talking to his disciples about their leadership and the contrast. Notice what it says in Ephesians 4.27. I just have uh, captured one of the phrases, but now I'm going to turn to the actual passage and read the context for you. It says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Now this is for our, our job, okay? Ephesians 4. Uh, verse 20, actually, starting at verse 25, Paul the Apostle is writing to the church, and he he's talks about several things here that is, is guidance for us. Put away falsehood. Okay, that's actually a, one of the themes of Scripture, one of those 12 themes. Let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, notice verse 28. He starts talking about marketplace activities. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may be able to give to those in need. Here's marketplace activities. Let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for edifying as fits the occasion, that it may impart grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, and so forth. Even Paul the Apostle recognized the, that there's the marketplace out there where the devil is at work. Actually, when he was in Ephesus, he saw this firsthand, if you remember the story. He went to Ephesus to preach, right? And we don't know the entire story, all the details, but apparently he noticed all the idol worship going on. And he made this one of the subjects of his sermons, right? And do you remember what happened when he started preaching about idol worship and the falseness of that and the dangers of that? I think it's Acts chapter 19, the story is told. He was run out of town by all the craftsmen in the marketplace who were selling idols. Yeah, 
Let's get this guy out of here. He's destroying the economy. Yeah. Paul knew the impact on the marketplace that Satan was having. And one of his messages, one of his attempts to address this was in Ephesus. And whoa, talk about a reaction to him. You know, it says in, in Revelation, I forget the exact verse, uh, it, it warns us that there's going to be some power near the end of time that will control the buying and the selling, right? Yeah. Well, Paul experienced that. And he was run out of Ephesus. Ephesians 6, verses 12 to 17. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of, the, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Clearly, human beings are right in the middle of the great controversy. And notice whose armor we are to put on. It's not our own. It's take up the whole armor of whom? God, not our armor. This is an indirect reference to the restoration process, putting on God's armor. And if you read that passage, you will find, I think it's five of the 12 themes listed right there. As they are, this is part of the armor of God. It's part of his character. This is our mandate. And look in 1 Peter 5, the other apostle that was aware of the great controversy. Peter, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but what does it say? Resist him? Is Peter talking only about our personal private life? When you're tempted to go smoke cigarettes, resist. When you're tempted to drink alcohol, resist. Is that what he's talking about? Is it only that? Is Peter limiting this resisting mandate to only those things of personal behavior, doesn't it equally apply to marketplace behaviors? Resist the devil in your company. Resist the devil in your relationship with your suppliers. Resist Satan in your relationship with your customers, with your employees, with your strategic partners. Resist him firm in your faith. I think we have an, a mandate in business to participate in the great controversy. Please. In your firm. Right. <laughs> resist him firm in your faith. How about resist in your... I get it. <laughs> Very good. James 4, 7. Many people believe this was the brother of Jesus. Biological brother of Jesus. Half-brother. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Of course, if you think about all that James is saying in his book, he's talking about stuff going on in the marketplace and how we treat each other, how we treat especially those who are marginalized in the market. Yeah. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, here are some of the issues in the great controversy. Uh, these are familiar territory to most of you. I'm pretty sure, at least I assume this to be true. One of the issues in the great controversy is justice. Is God just in offering justification to us by faith? And how about allegiance to God? Big question. Is allegiance to God coerced? Is God coercing us 
to follow him? That was one of the big questions in the book of Job. Or does our allegiance arise, as one of the Adventist theologians puts it, from an intelligent appreciation of his character? I think it's these elements of his character, by the way. When we express these in the marketplace, in the context of our firms, of our work, that provide a, a plausibility that there's another kind of life to live in community here. It, it presents a, perhaps even, Ellen White doesn't call it this, but perhaps it's another kind of ent entering wedge. Where in our relationships in business, people begin to see, boy, there's something different here. Something different, and that they are attracted to find out what is that and why. Another issue in the great controversy has to do with freedom. Freedom. Satan claimed that God is constraining us unnecessarily. That we ought to have complete freedom. And so the question has arisen, is the law, is God's law a necessary refraint or is it an unfair burden on us? Should boundaries, as Satan says, Lucifer said, we ought to remove the boundaries. God is keeping us from experiencing all that we could experience. Should we remove the boundaries? And what is it that, foster, that generates or fosters a flourishing life? What is it? That's become an issue in the great controversy. Is it in preserving the elements of God's character and following and imitating those? Is that what fosters flourishing life? Or is it in changing the character of God? And finally, as I've, I've suggested already, one of the issues, at least for business, is how does God manage when creatures turn away from his plan for a flourishing life? Well, with the theme of the great controversy intersects lots of other themes, creation, holiness, covenant, Sabbath, shalom, and so forth. And we won't have time to explore each of those today, but I do want to talk about the great controversy in terms of the purpose of business. First of all, business is not just local, and it's not just global. And some of you probably run, operate global businesses or uh, regional businesses or, or maybe even international. No, no, no. <laughs> business is more than that. Business is cosmic in its significance. Business organizations run by faithful Christians. The purpose of business in this light, I believe, is showing us that we operate business in order to emulate how God manages and thereby showing the attractiveness of the wonderful lifestyle and showing us the attractiveness of the lawgiver. Purpose of business, not just to make money, but to reveal God's character. The purpose of business, to foster freedom, not absolute, completely independent kind of freedom, but freedom within boundaries. Freedom that, that honors and fosters interdependence. Purpose of business, eventually and ultimately, will show that rebellion against God really doesn't work. How can we separate our business life from the rest of life and say, well, everything over here, that's going to show that rebellion doesn't work. But we're not going to talk about business. We'll leave that out of the conversation. It's not important. But everything else we do in our life, that's going to show at the end of time and after the judgment and after the millennium, that's going to show that rebellion doesn't work. But business, we're, we're just, shh, 
going to talk about that. <laughs> that can't be right. Business has got to be a part of this conversation. Is our role in the great controversy to be limited only to our personal, private life? How might we apply these ideas and what is the purpose of your business? I suggest to you that the purpose is the restoration of the image of God and the imitation of Christ's character. When you're in business situation, when it's not appropriate to talk about Jesus in an open, direct, explicit way, I think you can still represent Jesus. You can still represent his character and advocate on behalf of these principles that are represented in these themes. You can encourage even unbelievers to imitate God. What? <laughs> even unbelievers imitating God? Yes, business is one of those contexts in which you can encourage unbelievers to start imitating God. If purpose is centered on the restoration of the image of God, then business and its connection with mission must be bigger than just getting someone ready for baptism. As important as that is, it's got to be seen in the bigger scheme of the plan of redemption and the restoration of his image. I just cannot see, from a logic point of view, I just cannot see that the Holy Spirit would wait until baptism to start transforming someone's character. <laughs> I just can't. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Right? Why not before baptism? In fact, one could argue that that has to happen before baptism. Otherwise, the person isn't really ready to say, I commit to God. This restoration process must be before, at, beyond baptism throughout the rest of life into the work that they do. Let's talk about application now. I've done enough preaching. The sermon is over. Right? Well, maybe. Uh, let's talk about application. If, if we are in the context of the great controversy, and there are certain issues in that great controversy, and certain principles that emerge from Scripture, what might that might mean for us day-to-day -day in business? Well, in order to describe this, I'm going to have to draw upon some of these other themes very briefly. Yeah, that's the very interesting thing about the great controversy theme. It draws upon all these other themes to illustrate and to show and describe, explain. And so really this, this draws upon creation theme. If we're in the great controversy in business, one of our purposes is to sustain and promote flourishing life. It is to honor the moral authority of God. And then to pick up the theme of holiness, the purpose of business is to be separate from the world and yet go to the world to reveal who he is. And if you study the book of the holiness book, the book of Leviticus, chapters 11 through about 20-ish, you will find specific descriptions many of which are related to economics and commerce. I was just blown away when I realized this one day. Actually, another author pointed this out. Many of these illustrations of holiness are in the context of the marketplace. And one of those has to do with serving those on the margins of society, the poor, the widows, right? Serving the margins. Something, there's something about serving people who are on the margins of society 
reveals God's character. Now that's a, this is a deep thought, but I want you to think and just meditate upon that. Wasn't this earth kind of become on the margins of the universe? Didn't it become the marginal element of the universe as Satan brought his rebellion to earth? This became the marginal place in the universe. It's the very place God decided to go to. Whoa. Whoa. I think of a bakery that hit the national news in the last couple of months. Uh, national NBC television news. Fascinating story. I forget the town it's in. I could go find it uh, eventually. And, and, and if you wanted to know, send me an email and I'll, I'll go research and find out who it is. But there was a bakery in a small town that decided to start hiring workers who had autism, Asperger's syndrome, and Down syndrome. Three groups of people who are on the margins of society in terms of, in terms of offering productive capacity to the community, right? Aren't these folks kept away from, kept in houses, institutions, separated from the rest, right? Yeah. Here's a bakery that said, you know, we want these folks to be a part of our company. Whoa. So they started hiring autistic folks, Asperger's syndrome, Down syndrome, as employees in their company. More than one. Several of these folks. This bakery, by the way, is making money. It's profitable. All right, so just set your mind at ease about how could they be profitable if they had more workers than many other bakeries had. They're profitable. I'm concerned not just about the profitability of the business, though. I'm thinking about the transformation that took place in that community. Wow. Not just the families, but for sure the families of those folks that were hired. And, and those persons, individuals, absolutely transformation. Because they knew they were contributing now. You know, God had a great plan when he had creation. He knew how important work is to us to contribute to other people's needs by working. Yeah. And so this bakery has shown, it has demonstrated the character of God. It is transforming that community. It wasn't too week, many weeks later that another business in New England, this is either Rhode Island or Connecticut, I forget which, they decided to do the same thing. It happened to be a movie theater. So they started hiring autistic, Asperger's syndrome, Down syndrome, employees. And that also hit the national news. All right? I'm not surprised. This is so different from what business is typically like, right? Focus in business these days is so much on the profit, building wealth, right? We'll let somebody else worry about the marginalized. Yeah, there's a social service. We pay our taxes. They'll just take care of them for us, right? So when this movie theater decided to do the same idea, policy of hiring, then they started getting phone calls from other companies all around the country. How do you do this? We want to contribute in our community in the same way. To pull in those who are in the margins. Pull them into the, the productive capacity of the community. And experience this transformation. How about the work of an accountant? I interact with accounting students all the time. I'm not an accounting professor. I teach management and business ethics. 
that I interact with accounting students, they come through my business ethics class and management courses. And sometimes I get to have lunch with them at the cafeteria and talk with them about their dreams and hopes for the future as accountants. I cannot think of a role in business that is better suited to resisting Satan than an accountant. <laughs> oh, boy. It's the generally accepted accounting principles, first of all, that provide the frameworks and the boundaries of protection, not just for the accountants, no, for us, <laughs> for the rest of us, believers or unbelievers, right? These accountants have a major role to play in, in resisting Satan. Without accountants, how much fraud and cheating and lying and stealing and other things would be going on? You know what I'm saying? Accountants have an amazing role to play. And I, I'm hopeful that some of these students catch this vision that I'm not just out for a career in accounting. I'm preparing myself to go out in God's armor to do battle with the Satan, Satan that is trying to undermine a flourishing life among God's creation. Accountants prevent fraud, theft, and cheating. They encourage other people inside their companies and outside their companies. Oh, yes, it goes beyond the confines of the firm to act with integrity and avoid wrongdoing. I was in a hospital as the chief financial officer before I started teaching at Southern. And do we have any other healthcare folks here? Health hospital, okay, let me just tell you quickly that, that there is a law, uh, and there's an amendment to the Medicare law. It's called the Stark II Amendment one of the Medicare laws, Stark Amendment. And anybody going into health care is taught about this law because you could go to jail if you break it. The inspector general has the authority to carry a badge and a gun and handcuffs and an orange suit, and they put you in orange suits, and they will take you away to jail if you break this law. And one of the provisions of that law is you cannot give physicians an incentive to admit a patient in a hospital like a little bonus, a little kickback thing, cannot be done. Now, if you think about that, there's a good reason for that. There'd be a whole lot of care given for no reason just to make a little extra money, right? Well, that's the law. So I was the CFO of a small hospital in Washington State, and my boss, the chief executive officer, came to me one day, and he said, well, I've, I've brought to the board a proposal that we start giving our doctors, I think it was like $20 in incentive every time they admit a patient. And my, my I just did that. And I said, I, I don't, we can't do that. I'm sure we can't do that. He said, oh no, the board, the board, is, the board loves this idea. <laughs> now, in that particular case, the board of trustees, none of them had any healthcare experience. It was an elected board because it was a, a municipality as a hospital district, municipality. They're all elected members from the community, right? Nobody had any healthcare knowledge. But my boss had 20 years experience in healthcare. And I'm thinking, what are you saying to me? So I went back to my office and I wrote him an email. I'm gonna document this thing. I am gonna create a paper trail, baby. <laughs> That's right. Paper trails are one ways to resist Satan. Transparency, all right? Let's get it out there. So I wrote him an email, and I said, I'm sure that we cannot do this. This is going to be breaking the law, blah, 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 all right? 
Oh, man, was he steaming. My boss was steaming when he got that email. Whew. He was angry. I didn't copy the email to anybody else, just to him. But he was angry. Well, in that particular hospital, is a municipality, a hospital district, meaning every board meeting was open to the public. Anybody in the public, and every time we had the meeting, there was the editor of the newspaper there, every meeting. And I was just shaking in my boots. I'm thinking, oh, what's going to happen? They're going to vote this at the board meeting, an open board meeting, and they're going to vote this thing that's against the law. I hope they don't do this. But they did. And I said to myself, oh, I hope that the editor just kind of ignores that when he writes his little article every week about the hospital. hope he ignores that piece. And he did. Oh, my goodness. No, I did not. I'd made my speech ahead of time. Uh, It's not the place to create a ruckus, I've learned, in organizations, in open board meeting. Um, So a month later or thereabouts, my boss comes, they voted it. My boss comes to me and says, well, I'd like to run the report. It's time to pay our doctors a little bonus. I'd like, would you run the report? And I said, I prefer not. Thank you very much. Oh, man. I can see a little trickle of steam coming out of his ear. And so he went around me to one of the staff accountants, and they ran the report for him. Then he brought it into me, and he said, would you sign this? <laughs> I said, no, thank you. This is against the law. Oh, man, the other ear starts steaming. And so he found a way to run all the checks, print all the checks, and he signed the check register, I guess. And he signed all the checks, gave them out to the doctors. And I said to myself, okay, there's the evidence now. We could go to jail. Not only that, the hospital will lose its Medicare license. The hospital will have to pay back four times whatever money we'd received from Medicare for the care we'd given, four times to pay back, kind of like Zacchaeus, right? Except that's in the law. And our career is over. And besides that, the doctor's careers are over because they're going to go to jail too. To receive the money, they'd have to go to jail. We're done. I'm thinking we're done. Well, it wasn't too long after that that for other reasons my boss was let go. I won't go into all those details, but the board chairman came to me and said, would you be the interim CEO for us? And I said, well, I will only on one condition, that we rescind that decision immediately because it's against the law. He didn't believe me. He didn't believe me it's against the law. I said, actually, I've communicated to my boss that it's against the law. And the decision went ahead and was made. And he said, you did? Out comes the paper trail, except it's an electronic form. He says, I'd like to see that email. No problem. (laughs) You may see it. They still didn't believe me. And they said, well, we need to to get an attorney, to hire an attorney. And so, okay, fine. We'll pay $800 and get a letter from the attorney saying the very same thing I've told you, which we did. $800 letter saying this is against the law and it was only then that the hospital board said let's stop the program. Had I been in another place I would have been putting my career on the line but since it was a public hospital I was protected from with state law protections. They couldn't fire me because I would have been doing something illegal. Had I been in a private organization though 
probably would have been putting my career on the line. Probably would have been fired. Yeah. I tell these things to students so that they know. They could be putting them their own self at risk. How about managers? Talk about the accountants. How about managers? Managers influence organizational policies by setting limits on freedom. We can prevent destructive actions inside the company, outside the company. By setting limits on destructive employee behavior, monitoring conversations, and managing what I call triangulation. Have you seen this before? I had the same hospital um, after my boss was let go. Uh, Mickey, who worked in the business office, came to me one day, and Mickey said, Laura is just on and on about Laura, another employee in the same department. I listened. Wanted to find out, okay, what's going on? I listened. It wasn't but an hour later, separate conversation. This time, Laura's in my office. Wah, 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 about Mickey. And I thought, oh, my, this is going to get destructive real quick. And so I thought about it overnight, prayed about it. The next morning, I went to Laura, and I said, uh, I'd like to talk with you in the conference room at 10 o'clock. And separately I went to Mickey and I said, I'd like to talk with you in the conference room at 10 o'clock. And when they both arrived, it was like, oh, oh okay, well, I guess we have to be here together with you. So I said, you know, there's some irritation. Something is, is grating. There's irritating. It's, it's, there's a destructive kind of feeling going on here. Each of you have come to me to talk about this. And we need to have this taken care of now because this will be like a cancer. If we don't cut it out right now, like a surgeon, it's got to be taken care of right now, this morning. And so before you leave the room, it needs to be taken care of. And I walked out. Let them be by themselves and I want you to let I said I want you to let me know the result I just walked out of the room I did not want to be the mediator with a shouting match and a you know did not want to get in the middle of that and about 30 minutes later each of them came to my office we worked it out thank you until that irritation had come up, they were really good friends and they were collaborating and helping each other. And this irritation blew up. And once it was resolved, they went back together to work again. And the destructive behaviors were gone. This is as much resisting Satan as when you are tempted to do something, you, you really want to do it, but you know you can't or shouldn't do it. In fact, one could argue that this is perhaps even more important because it affects other people immediately, or at least just as important. Preventing bullying and open expressions of anger. I think in an illustration of the J.M. Smucker Company, started oh, well over 100 years ago um, by a Mennonite family, the J.M. Smucker, who started by making apple butter, 
putting it in a cart, I think a horse-driven cart, taking it around the community selling his apple butter. All right? You all know the Smucker brand. Yeah, what, is, what does Jam Smucker Company sell? What's the, what are they known for? Jams. Yeah, they have got a whole line of products now. But, yeah, the Jams is like, in our memory, that is the big brand awareness. Yeah. One of the rules of the J.M. Smucker Company is there will be no open expressions of anger, period. It will not happen in this company. No, no, you could get fired by showing anger. Whoa, think about the power that that could have in a work community or a community larger. No expressions of anger shown. Talk about resisting Satan. We're going to have civil conversations here. We're going to have a flourishing work community here. Yes, people do get angry. We're not denying the emotion of anger. Right. But there's a community at stake. And flourishing life in the community that's at stake here. There will be no open expressions of anger. That's one of the rules. Or one of the policies. We can use managerial control and feedback reports going on about ethical issues. They wore Moses out sometimes with their complaints and talking about stuff, what's right and wrong. And in Numbers, there's one of these stories. The ladies come to Moses, some ladies. And they say, well, we know that there's a rule here in the law about the inheritance business. And the inheritance is supposed to go to the eldest son, but we don't have eldest sons. So, is this right? I'm kind of paraphrasing loosely here the story of the conversation. They're bringing this conversation to one of the leaders, Moses. Is this right? And Moses takes it to the Lord. I don't know if you remember that story, but remember God's response? Listen to the ladies. Listen to the ladies. Yes, the law is what it is. Yes, of course. But in this case, you know, that's not fair to these families. They don't have firstborn sons. It's not fair to them. So you've got to make, it, make them whole here in terms of this inheritance. So there's an ethical conversation, a bit of a complicated one. Yeah. The, the, the ladies in my class love it. And I say, listen to the ladies, by the way. <laughs> oh, I got ahead of myself. I talked about the fossil group there. This is a shared responsibility. Sharing ethical responsibility is one way to resist Satan. Yeah. Satan tried in heaven unsuccessfully, but he well he he was partially successful trying to gain control of the minds of some of the angels going around the chain of command, if you will. Illegitimately putting forward his own status trying to persuade them, the other angels. We learn from this part of the great controversy that attempting to gain control outside the chain of authority is not only illegitimate, it weakens the cause of good. It's a weakening thing. And for some of us, there might be a time in our career when we have to put ourselves on the line, our career on the line, to say, you know, I'm not going to participate in that. 
I'm not going to destroy flourishing life by attempting to do these kinds of things. Another thing we learn from the great controversy story is don't pass the blame. Take responsibility. We also learn from the creation story theme that God is the owner of all elements. Now, this is a big university term in schools of business called the value chain. The value chain, big business idea. Basically, all it means is stuff that you have to dig out of the earth, mine out of the earth, pump out of the earth, or harvest from the earth that is then take, taken and transformed into other products that are then transported and transformed again to other products and maybe to finally to components. And then we, we see them put together in something we call an assembly plant for automobiles or other kinds of products, right? And then sold in retail stores, used by consumers, and finally put into a landfill or shredded up and recycled, okay? That's the value chain. From beginning to end, God is the owner of all that. Everything. We must respect His... If we're going to have a flourishing life, we better respect His property. That's a biblical principle. Another principle in the great controversy is to take chaotic, barren wastelands of organizations or workspaces and to transform them into orderly, flourishing spaces where loyalty, compassion, and healing can be expressed. There is nothing better to resist Satan than to come into an organization and transform the organization. I'm a proponent of what we call servant leadership. The big thing that I notice that we don't talk about so much in servant leadership, however, is the transformation of the organization itself. Robert Greenleaf, when he promoted servant leadership back in the 1970s, focused mainly on individual workers and their boss, right? And how the servant leader, uh, the servant first leader would help transform individual workers. That's fine. That's wonderful. But we normally don't talk about the need to transform the organization itself and to serve the organization. It's in serving and transforming the organization that we can actually promote a flourishing life for individuals as well and bring loyalty and healing. I teach a course, basically it's called Organization Theory, Management in a Changing World, and that's what this is about, transforming an organization so it's flourishing. I, I get really excited about this because it's, I see it now much clearer than I did even three or four years ago. It's a direct contribution to the great controversy in the world of business. We can remove and prevent chaos by organizing. Think about entrepreneurs and investors and the strategic choices that you make. What type of business to go into as an entrepreneur? Where to invest your time and resources? Perhaps if you see your entrepreneurial energy as centered in the great controversy, you might make a choice for what type of business to go into that promotes positive, flourishing life. How about getting involved with industries through your investments or your business activities that actually counteract that in those industries that undermine flourishing life? What better way 
to get engaged in the great controversy than to get involved in industries that counteract the work of the devil in other industries. You know, giving, uh, giving consumers value and choices among products that promote flourishing life. And through your products and your business activities to demonstrate, not just through words, but demonstrate through actions and the quality of the products that God's plan has value. We're getting down to the end of our time here. Let me just finish off by a couple of other ideas for, I think, how we can be involved in the great controversy in business by fostering community with our employees, showing how happy we are to see them. When I realized this, I started changing how I respond to students when they walk in the classroom. Even the students, there's always one or two in a class, in a, in a school year, that kind of push the envelope of the, the class rules and so forth. They want exceptions to the rules and all of this. Or they're a little bit, they're a bit irritated maybe sometimes and they show their irritation. I make sure that when they walk in the room, I smile at them and I say, I'm glad you're here. Boy, that has calmed some folks down. <laughs> Just that in itself. I'm glad you're here. We can foster community by encouraging positive storytelling. To get deeper than just the small talk, how are you feeling this morning or how is it this morning with you? Well, that's fine, that's good, that's a common greeting, but how are things really with you? To give credit to others. It says in Proverbs that when we have the opportunity to do good to someone and we don't, that's not so good. We need to do good when we got the opportunity to do it. To challenge workers, to connect people together in work groups, informal groups, and so forth. Some factories have learned this, that uh, when a worker does the same repetitious action day after day, hour after hour, I was in the, the new Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga area to, to take a tour, a very interesting plant, and I noticed our, our little caravan, little train that they took us around in, they stopped at one point right in front of a worker, and I just watched him. He had five bolts to put into a frame of, a, of an automobile, right, the chassis. Five bolts. Went on, next frame comes over. Five bolts. You know, it's all up above him right here, right? Five bolts, next frame, five bolts. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, all day long, I, could, I would go nuts doing that, right? But factories have learned that, well, yeah, after a while, a worker that does five bolts, five bolts, they need a change, right? There are other skills that people have than just that, and so they cross-train them to work on their other teams. They shift people around a little bit, kind of rotate them around from team to team. They connect them, their work with the importance of their work with the, the work of the next team that takes, so that they, they see the value, so it's not just five bolts. And no, 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 those five bolts are really important because the next thing that comes are dependent upon those five bolts, right? You don't want the engine falling off. And so... They do these things to, because they realize they're human beings here and we are together in a, in a group and so they help form smaller subgroups even in factories to help counteract some of that evil that comes from the high uh, degree of specialization which is important for profitability but can sometimes be destructive. We see in the scripture that there are times when in the great controversy individuals 
are under the power of the Holy Spirit and they emerge in the marketplace to speak out. I mentioned the prophet Amos early on. Now notice how I put the word pro uh, prophet in quotation. I did that for a reason because I, I thought, well, there's going to be some, some good soul in the room that is going to think that I'm, I'm thinking that one of you all will be a prophet. And you're going to think, no, only an Ellen White can be a prophet and only Moses can be a prophet, but none of us can be a prophet. So I'm talking about the role of prophet as teacher and cultural reflector, right? Not one giving prophecies in, in that way. A prophetic role to speak out on behalf of injustice or to correct injustices, that kind of prophetic role, okay? There are opportunities for some of us in business when we know that there are injustices in our industry. And there's more than one industry that has this problem. When we know that that's going on in our industry, who's going to stand forth and speak up about it to take a leadership role to speak? Some of us might be called to do this. For some of us, it's at the end of our career when we're at the pinnacle of influence in our industry and we have nothing to lose because we're going to retire anyway real soon. Maybe that's the time to speak out. For others of us to join together with other, other believers, maybe if, even if they're unbelievers, but they still see the value of justice, if that's the issue, to form a coalition to say, you know, we're going to speak together as a group here this practice in our industry is unjust, it's got to change. And maybe you don't do that with the public, but you do that at the annual meeting at the, behind the closed doors among the other leaders in the industry and say, we've got to change these behaviors. This happened in the contract catering industry a few years ago. Yeah, contract catering. I'm not talking about wedding catering. No, I'm talking about the really big business contract catering. The companies that provide food services for the largest corporations around the globe. They will come in and they will operate your cafeteria in your company, maybe corporate headquarters, your, your factory, whatever. These are the really big names, okay? Aramarks, the Marriott's, the Sodexo Marriott's, and so forth, big names. Well, in the early 1990s, there was a problem in that industry. Yeah. To make this uh, a longer story a little bit shorter for this morning, one of the problems was that... Uh, these uh, contract caterers sign a, they, they hope to have a five-year contract, right? The longer the contract, the better. Uh, but maybe it's a three-year contract. And so now they're coming up to the end of the ter contract term, and the company's now putting it out to bid for, you know, let's, let's get a better deal, right? Next contract term, next three years, let's see if we can get a better deal from a competitor. So what was going on is if the, if the company that was the incumbent lost the contract for the next period, managers in that company, in that, uh, for that contract cater, would start talking about the company that had just won the contract, bad-mouthing them. Oh, that is destructive stuff. Destructive. The best workers started leaving. Before the, you know, like 90 days ahead of time, we know that there's going to be a new contractor and we're out of here. The employees start thinking, oh, my goodness, I don't want to work for that kind of an employee, this employer coming in. So they start looking for jobs, right? The best employee is leaving. That is so destructive. 
and other, other behaviors were going on to undermine the companies, you know. Yes, it's fine to be competitive, but to do dirty business like that. So finally, leaders in the industry, they got together and said, you know, this is hurting everybody. It's not just hurting us. It's hurting the workers. It's hurting the companies, our, our, the companies we serve. It's not, it's, everybody's getting hurt here, right? We've got to change this. We've got to get some ethical standards here that we all agree to that will promote a flourishing life. Somebody has to take a leadership position, though, to get the conversation started, right? Yeah, that's a prophetic role, a leadership role. Let me finish by saying, my, my time is up here, but let me finish by saying that one of the things I think we need, I've been to the national ASI meeting, um, and I went around to all the exhibits three times just to make sure I was not missing anything. I may have missed something. I noticed that there's a, there's a, a proliferation of wonderful uh, supplies, wonderful materials to use in sharing our faith, right? But no materials in terms of sharing our faith that combines business and business issues. Ellen White says, Religion and business are not two separate things. They are one. How about some sharing materials? How about training materials available that combine business and the Bible? Yeah, I think this is one of the greatest needs that perhaps we need. Or maybe those, those materials are available. I just am not aware of them. I would expect to see them at the National ASI Convention, though. And so I'm hopeful that in the future we'll see some the development of training materials, sharing materials that combine business and religion. Yeah. And how about stories? A friend of mine, maybe you know Mike Talley, who was uh, several years ago one of the national leaders, as I recall. He and I have had a, several conversations. What if we had a, a brochure developed? Maybe a little booklet, but start small. 25 things you can do in your business to share Christ. Things that have that companies have actually done and tried successfully. To have those handed out at church, to people in business, to entrepreneurs, to you know, people who are not members of ASI could have the ASI brand on it, right? Man, start the conversation in congregations about these things. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.